Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, environmentalists are claiming victory after Hamilton politicians voted to hold firm to the city's urban boundary on Friday evening. Will this decision rob buyers of housing choices in the future? What do we think the province is going to do? Are they going to get involved? Well, we'll talk about that. Ontario high schools are going to shift back to regular semesters no later than February, returning secondary students to normal schedules for the first time since the onset of the pandemic. OSSTF President Karen Littlewood will join us to talk about that. And on Friday, a jury found Kyle Rittenhouse not guilty on all counts of the Kenosha shooting that killed two and injured one. What are their legal ramifications and what's going to happen in that community? It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Still an awful lot of discussion going on, and I think probably will be an awful lot of discussion going on here in the Hamilton area about the city council decision late last week to say no to a staff recommendation to uh, extend the urban boundary for future growth in this community. Vote was 13 to 3, as it turned out. Uh, Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger says uh, they will try to accommodate future population growth through what he calls a combination of infill and intensification. So this is not a no growth option. This is a where do we grow option. And in my view, that where do, where do we grow option ought to be within the existing urban boundary. Uh, that was the sentiment, I guess, of, well, obviously the 13 people that voted in favor of this. A rather lengthy discussion, as it usually is with Hamilton City Council. So where do we go from here, and what what's in the future? Uh, we're not quite sure. I mean, the council decision is stand that is going to stand, certainly, but uh, there may well be ramifications because of the uh, comments made by the Municipal Affairs Minister, first of all, here in the province of Ontario, and also a number of uh, stakeholders who also uh, voiced opposition to what City Council wanted to do. They were in favor of the staff recommendation. I want to bring Michael Collins-Williams into uh, the conversation. Michael, of course, is the Chief Executive Officer of the West End Home Builders Association, one of those people that uh, were talking to Council about this and uh, suggested that they accept the uh, the staff recommendation, which called for, and, and by the way, because... And I've talked about this considerably on the show. There's such misrepresentation about the arguments that were actually being made. Uh, uh, you know, but this is uh, this is going to be a growth area, and this is you know all this farmland, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it is what it is. They've made the decision. Uh, but Michael, first of all, welcome to the program. I'm glad you could join us today. Uh, clearly, you're not happy with the decision. I think a lot of people are upset about this, what happened and the way in which it happened. What does happen going forward? Where are we now? Well, good morning, Bill. Um, the West End Home Builders Association is disappointed that council has made a decision for uh, less choice in the marketplace, which may exacerbate the current affordability issues being experienced in the city. Uh, we are, however, focused on the future and thereby looking forward to working with council to implement uh, what will have to be very significant reforms to our existing planning framework that will be necessary to facilitate um, much, much higher levels of intensification across the city. Yeah, I, I want to pull some of the, you know, the, the more, I, I guess, you know, incendiary comments made by some folks here. Uh, as a home builder, I mean, your job is to build homes. We need homes. We don't have enough homes. There's going to be future growth. Those people need someplace to live. Uh, so you're a stakeholder and, and, you know, you guys are busy. I mean, you're not new to the scene here. You've, you've helped to build this community and other communities to the extent that they are built right now. Uh, we're going to need more accommodation right now. And uh, the council decision says, okay, no more on the urban boundary. We're going to find plots of land within the city to do this. Uh, talk to me about the feasibility of that and, and whether or not we can meet some of the standards and maybe even some of the projections made by the report that the province gave that the city is basing their recommendation on. Well, we certainly have some challenges going forward. 
Um, I think our members are up for those challenges. We have many uh, home builders in Hamilton that are multi-generational companies uh, employing overall tens of thousands of people uh, across the city that are that are building our city. Fundamentally, we are city builders. Um, but what the city has chosen uh, is, is a plan that there will be simply less choices in the marketplace uh, in terms of having a diversity of uh, options and a, a mix of homes to meet market demand. Um, the city's own projections that were sent to the provincial government, um, the Minister of Municipal Affairs and Housing articulated a concern that under the no boundary expansion scenario, there would be a shortfall of approximately 59,300 ground related units. Uh, so this really is a complete paradigm shift uh, in terms of how Hamilton will be built in the future. Um, under the no boundary expansion uh, scenario that uh, council has chosen to proceed with, uh, that's going to mean an additional 85,000 people and uh, 27,700 units uh, are going to be added within the built up area through additional intensification. Uh, and that's over and above what the city recommendation was for an ambitious density scenario. So um, we certainly have challenges ahead of us. Uh, and this is going to require a lot of changes in terms of the the planning policies and, and how our city is built. And uh, Bill, I look at this, you know, the decision may have been made last week, but we're not at the end of the process with that decision. We're really at the beginning of a whole new process in terms of significant changes and reforms uh, going forward to ensure that uh, our members, my members of the West End Home Builders Association can still um, build the necessary supply of housing to uh, try to fight this housing crisis and, and keep building Hamilton and, and ensure that there's homes for people and families that want to live here. Okay, Michael, I want to be clear on something. And again, because the, the waters got muddied, I think, by uh, the length of the discussion and some of the comments uh, that were made by a number of the people that were involved in the meeting, not just yet on Friday, of course, but I mean, the meeting uh, previously to that as well. Your association is not opposed to, to infill development. I mean, it, it got, that's the sense of what I'm getting from the conversations you and I have had. Uh, you understand that. You think it's got to be an important part of this, but you just said you're suggesting, if I can characterize this, you're suggesting, yeah, we want to do that and we should do that, but that's not going to be enough to meet the needs of the future. Is, is that the essence of your of your discussion? Absolutely. Our, our association is a pro-intensification association. Uh, my personal background, I have two decades of experience being a professional planner, being very focused on intensification, transit-oriented development, and uh, building more missing middle housing. Um, we just don't think that the plan that the city's brought forward is realistic or feasible. Uh, what we were seeking was some kind of balance where most of the growth under the ambitious density scenario was going to be intensification and was going to be intensification that our members, members of the West End Home Builders Association, uh, would have been building. Uh, our concern is that, um, I'll, I'll use the words, an extreme scenario that's been proposed. Uh, we just don't think that the market demand exists uh, for 75% of the homes going forward to be built as a apartment or condo units and, and not having those options for families and, and for uh, people that want a backyard. And uh, I've said before on your show that there, there are people that, you know, Hamilton's not an island. Uh, if they can't get the type of housing they're looking for, they'll just leave. Um, 
but fundamentally, but isn't that? I, I, want to, I want to I want to stop you on that point because that's something uh, that I know you've contended, and some of the other people that were in favor of the staff recommendation have contended. Uh, a number of the councillors who voted against the proposal uh, of those thirteen simply said, "Well, that's not true. Those projections can't necessarily be true." But you know, here's what concerned me with those comments, though, Michael. If you don't build the kind of housing or the amount of housing that's going to be needed, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because people that are not going to look at Hamilton as an option said, I don't want to live there. I can't kind of find the kind of accommodation I want. I'm going someplace else. And that's already started. Yeah, we've uh, Mike Moffitt from the Smart Prosperity Institute undertook some uh, research in the spring, a special report on Hamilton, looking at inflows and outflows of people. Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of people coming into Hamilton, especially from Toronto and the GTA. And in a lot of cases, they are leaving more expensive communities uh, and higher density communities uh, coming to Hamilton, looking for somewhat more attainable, affordable housing, uh, typically housing with a little more elbow room, a little more space. Um, that's not really the scenario that may play out in the future, uh, given some of the choices being made. Uh, and that same report found that over the last few years, uh, 15,000 families have left Hamilton uh, and they've specifically gone to communities uh, like St. Catharines, uh, like Brantford, like Woodstock, a little further uh, down the QEW or up the 403 where where housing's a little more affordable. And I'm, I'm sure most of your listeners, uh, just anecdotally, know some people that have given up and, and that they're leaving. Uh, you know, I was just talking to somebody last week, and this is just one anecdotal story. They're not even staying in Ontario. They picked up and they're, they're moving to Halifax because the housing there is so much more affordable. So I think we need to be careful going forward that Hamilton continues to be a place that is attractive um, because we are competing with other jurisdictions, not just for people to move here, but for companies and businesses to establish themselves here. Uh, and they want to make sure that they have uh, a well-educated and skilled workforce that's um, local. Uh, and, and our concern going forward is that some of these changes uh, going forward are not going to be balanced. But I do come back to the fact that we support intensification. There are huge opportunities along the LRT corridor, and, and Hamilton is going to change. We're going to have a whole new skyline developing downtown uh, in the coming years. Uh, but this shift from an ambitious density scenario to a no-boundary expansion scenario, I, 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 I'm not sure people are ready for the level of intensification that is going to be coming. Well, there's a couple of things, and and listen, I'm I'm not against intensification. I'm not in fact intensive infill. I mean, and this is not a new idea. I mean, I I haven't been on city council since what 2005, and we were doing a lot of that back then. Uh, and I got to tell you something, by the way. Whenever we tried to do an infill development, uh, in other words, you know, take a, a property, an old school property, anything, and try to put you know houses in there, uh, townhouses, whatever the case may be, I, I, the biggest pushback I heard most of the time was from the neighborhood. They said we don't want that stuff here. Uh, and not just in my area, but in other areas too. And those veteran councils, and God knows there's a handful of them on city council right now that have been there for 20, 25 years. They can probably attest to that same sort of thing. There's pushback from the community that says we don't necessarily want that. And it gets ugly. It goes to, to you know, the Ontario boards. And there's a, it, it, it can, it's not going to be a smooth transition. And that's not to suggest that you have, you have to continue to stop doing it. Of course, we have to start doing that. But we have to talk about the kind of housing that's going to be there. Uh, and whether or not there's going to be a market for this. And I know that a number of your members have experienced just what I described. They, they came forward under the, the the guise of, okay, we're going to do an infill development here, or we're going to put a high-rise in here, right, which is zoned properly. 
And the people there in the single family homes will say, well, we don't want that. Uh, and we're going to fight this. And, and it gets it gets really messy. So this is this is not going to be a smooth process. And I think some of the people in council that even voted uh, against the staff recommendation probably acknowledge that. And, and even including the mayor, who's been on council for a long, long time. Uh, I'll paraphrase. I think Mayor Eisenberger said, "Is look, we're, we're going to monitor this. And if it's not working, we can always make adjustments. So in other words, they, they, I don't think they buy into this 100%. I think there was a lot of political motivation for them to vote the way they did right now, too, because there is an election next year and they don't want to be seen or perceived to be Luddites and say, well, we don't believe in all this stuff. They do. Uh, and, and I think, you know, I go back to your point initially, what even the staff recommendation said is lots and lots of intensification, but that's not going to be enough. And I, I'm, I'm, my concern is, as a matter of fact, I'm, I'm, I'm starting to wonder if at some point in the future, and I, by, by, the, by that I mean a few years down the road, Council may have to reconsider part of this decision. I think you've hit the nail on the head, and this is sort of as an association and as housing providers, uh, this is our biggest fear out of this decision that we're going to be stuck between a rock and a hard place in terms of being able to deliver new housing supply in that there is no boundary expansion. And on the other end, are we really going to intensify are some of these uh, councillors that are against the boundary expansion, are they going to welcome with open arms um, mid-rise developments, um, missing middle developments and, and high rises in some locations in their wards? Or are we uh, as housing providers in the industry going to have to be fighting every single application and appealing applications? And, and this means these projects take four, five, six years to go through approvals um, simply to provide the necessary supply of housing to meet population growth. And if, if we're a bit in a squeeze play here that we can't have the boundary expansion, uh, but the planning framework does not uh, facilitate or allow intensification, we're going to have a significant problem on our hands. You know, I think we have a problem on our hands today with the cost of housing, uh, but it's just going to get worse. So going forward, um, as council rounds out this official plan around a no boundary expansion, uh, as I said earlier, this is not the end of the process. This is the start of the process. They are going to need to upzone uh, areas uh, to allow for intensification to occur. Uh, and they're going to have to look at existing neighborhoods where we only allow single family homes uh, and allow a lot of other options there. Not necessarily mid rise or high rise, but semis, towns, stacked townhomes, uh, allow this type of housing to proceed without having to go through a political vote every single time. Yep, and I'm not suggesting that's not a, a bad thing or a good thing. What I'm suggesting is it's not going to be an easy process uh, because there is going to be pushback from some of the neighborhoods that said, wait a second, when I bought this house 25 years ago, uh, you know, the real estate agent or even the city councilor at the time, who's probably still on council, uh, promised me this was never going to happen, and now it's happening, and they're going to get upset about this. It happens. That's the reality here, and uh, this is this is. I, I agree with that point absolutely on your behalf. This is not going to be an easy process. It's going to be difficult because it's going to call for rezoning. Uh, there's going to be an awful lot of people that are going to be upset about this. Uh, I, I I know that Ancaster Councilor Lloyd Ferguson got vilified for voting the way he did, but I can tell you. Uh, in, in that community, uh, people resist the kind of change that says that's going to change the character of our neighborhoods, and we don't want that. And I've heard the same thing from people in Stony Creek and in, in other communities as well. So uh, it's it, this is not going to be easy. Uh, I, I'm not suggesting had they gone the other way, it would have been easy either. 
but it's going to take an awful lot of planning, and this is not going to happen overnight, is it? The politics of housing and the politics of development uh, typically become very local very quickly. We can talk about intensification and density in the abstract, uh, but soon as there is that sign across the road or, or next door that says, um, you know, coming soon is, is a new planning application for uh, a new use of that land. And local constituents are very good at placing pressure on their locally represented uh, elected officials. And unfortunately, the easiest answer, especially in an election year, for most locally elected officials is no. And we need to find better ways of coming to an answer that is yes. Well, and we've seen examples of that. And I'm, I know I'm, I'm getting out of your realm as a home builder, but I'm from the political side. I've seen way too many examples uh, in this community and others, by the way, in the past where counselors do what they know is the wrong thing. And yet we're going to fight this, even though, you know, the, the, all these 13 people that just said this is what we should do. A number of them are going to be faced with this very same situation. Do I go with the neighbors who don't want to see this here? Or do I go with what I promised that I was going to do for this community? And you're right. The politically expedient thing to do is to say support the neighbors and maybe they'll vote for me in the next election. But is that really the right thing? So it's, this is this is going to get messy for the next little while, and it's going to be interesting to see just who sticks to their guns on this. Uh, Michael, we're short on time today. Uh, this is, as you mentioned, not the end of the conversation nor the end of the debate. Uh, appreciate you joining us today. Sure, uh, to be sure, rather, a lot more to come on this in the days and weeks, if not years ahead. Thank you for the opportunity. Great speaking with you. Michael Collins-Williams, who is the uh, Chief Executive Officer of the West End Home Builders Association. And, uh, and that's, I just, you know, forewarned is forearmed in situations like this. Uh, there's a lot yet to be done on this. And uh, some very difficult decisions are going to have to be made uh, by this and probably the next council as well. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It appears that Ontario high schools are going to be able to return to a regular four-course semester system by February. Ontario's health minister and the chief medical officer of health uh, are just about to make announcements about what's going to be happening. We heard from the education minister about this as well. Uh, Global's Dave Warden has the story. Well, most school boards just moved into a second quadmaster in the last few days. The province says before the next timetable change, high schools will be permitted to go back to the pre-pandemic schedule. A number of school boards have requested the move away from the modified semester system, with parents and students complaining that three-hour classes are onerous and make it difficult to absorb all the information. More changes will be announced as well in the press conference, including rapid antigen testing over the winter break for students. Dave Woodard, Global News. Well, there seems to be some pretty strong consensus for this. So I want to bring uh, Karen Littlewood into the conversation. Karen, of course, is the president of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation. Uh, Karen, great to have you back in the program. Thanks for the time today. Thanks, Bill. I'm happy to be back. Uh, I, I want to say this, this sounds like a return to normal. I'm not sure if we even know what normal is these days. I mean, we've had so many twists and turns. Uh, but but your thoughts on, on what they're proposing here? Yeah, it's, it's no, it's not a return to normal, but it's a signal that we're going to be able to get there. And it's a really positive development. When I consider the fact that people um, working in education have been absolutely burning out, but more importantly, the students have been suffering through these timetables where everything is compacted. If you're sick for a day with whatever you might be sick with, you've missed multiple days of a course. To be able to go back to something that looks a little closer to normal, we have kids who for the last uh, couple of years haven't been able to have a regular high school um, experience and it's really affected them and their mental health. So this is a, a good, positive direction. It's not everything that we need, but it's a step in the right direction. 
Maybe if you could just, I, I don't want to dwell too much on the past, but I mean, because we heard some of those problems and some of those concerns from parents groups and from teachers, frankly, about the way things were. And it was a combination that had to be made because of the, the, the COVID situation and, and the COVID restrictions that were on there. But the idea of having longer class time, which I know it can be onerous, uh, and talk to us about the pressure that put on teachers and students to try to get through the uh, the curricula in, in time and in a, and and in a fashion in which they, you know there there was something to get out of this instead of saying we got to rush through this. Sorry, if you don't get it, you're going to have to pick this up on your own. Yeah, exactly. As you just mentioned, you know, a quadmester ended, so we had people who were working desperately to try and make sure that they had all their final evaluations in place, that they knew the accurate assessment of the students, but were planning for the next quad that they're going to be delivering and trying to compact that in to take um, all of the information that should be over, you know, half of a year and try and compact it into a quarter of a year, considering um, the the inability to even have those experiential type uh, activities that we love to have in the classroom that really make uh, the learning concrete, that make it it's something that sticks. Um, you know, you, you cram for something and you need to, to memorize something, you do right away and then it's gone. And it's not something that's stuck forever and it's certainly not permanent learning. Um, the move to be able to come back to have, you know, the, just the actual timing that's needed to deliver a curriculum acti- um, accurately, I think it's really important. The, the consultation for this, we'd heard that school boards didn't like it, that directors of education didn't like it. We knew that our members didn't like it. We knew that kids didn't like it. So it was a matter of making sure that the medical officer of health understood that this is something that's really important to be able to get back to a regular type of timetable. I think it's important to to reiterate here too that uh, this is and you're right to your political uh, about the political ramifications. Invariably, anytime the government makes an announcement like this, the opposition parties jump all over it and say, "Yeah, they, they don't know what they're doing." Everybody seems to agree this is the right thing to do, which I think sends a very positive sign. But it's not to your point. I think Karen, a few minutes ago, this is not going to be business as usual in those schools. Uh, I mean, because COVID protocols are still going to be in place. Uh, there's still a big concern about social distancing, where students are allowed to go, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the way in which they learn is going to be different, but there's still going to be a, a very cautious approach from what I understand. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, um, the announcement was made last week that students are going to be able to take home five rapid tests for over the holiday. I've been advocating for rapid test usage in the schools for months now. And, you know, if we look at the outbreaks that are happening in the elementary systems, they would have been able to targeted and would have been able to be dealt with without having school closures or class dismissals if you can identify where the COVID cases are. So it's great that students are going to have these five tests to take home. But what about the staff? The, you know, the staff could be in contact with other people over the holidays too. After Thanksgiving, wouldn't it have been great to know that everybody could have a rapid test and you could isolate where there are issues and people could continue to learn in person? I know in Hamilton, they're not doing a lot of this hybrid learning that we're hearing about where a teacher is in a classroom with students in person and students online, but it is a concern across the province too. So things aren't really back to normal. We're hoping that these the use of the rapid test maybe will increase and we'll have better access to them as well so that we'll be able to identify and keep the school safe. Still concerns about air quality as it gets colder. Do we want the windows open when it's 20 below when we've got some schools with radiator mm. systems that might end up you know, leaking and now we don't have a heating system at all? We've got so many things to consider in keeping the school safe. How do you 
members feel about this, the way things are going right now? Because that's that's an important part of this as well. And I know we hear the announcements from the ministry about you know they've x x number of dollars invested in in as you mentioned into HVAC systems, et cetera, et cetera. And, and it's it's a big number, and it can be impressive. But if you just mm-hmm. read the press release, but I, I I like to go right down to the grassroots level and say these are the people in the classroom. What are you experiencing? Are you comfortable with the way things are going with the environment that's being uh, given to the students and to the teachers? By and large, are, are they okay? Okay with this? Yeah, well, you know, in March of 2020, we all kind of thought schools would close for a couple of weeks and then we go back to normal and it hasn't been that. And the people working in education have done their very best to deliver quality education to the citizens and the students of Ontario, but it's gotten more and more challenging. So, you know, as the timeline extends and we continue to have cases rising, we're concerned about what education is going to look like. We need to make sure that we have those consultations and that we have a fully funded system. You know, in a time of a pandemic to hear that $500 million is going to be cut from education, that's really quite concerning for people. To have this one little piece of good news about returning or the ability to return to uh, a more typical timetable is really incredibly welcome, but we can't hold our hats on one time tiny piece of good news. We need to have more good news. We need to have more consultation. We need to have the funding in order to keep the system strong so that the students will benefit. Education is an investment, and I say it over and over again, and we need to be investing in the students of the province. And I've heard from healthcare officials that are actually quite pleased with the vaccination rate among especially high school students, mm-hmm. uh, and which I know is a factor in, in the, the province deciding to move ahead with this. That it's it's a it's a comfort level and it's it's a nice safety net, but it's not the the be all and end all. There's still other things that need to be done, and and I'm glad you referenced what happened a year ago. We thought we were sort of out of the woods then too. <laughs> And then bang, it just kind of, you know, the roof fell in on us because of the, mm-hmm. the, the spike that happened with this fourth wave and, and with the Delta variant. Uh, that's still out there. Is there a concern, especially over the Christmas holiday, that things could get bad again? They could get serious again? Because that's, that's just around the time frame that it occurred last year. Yeah, no, exactly. You know, people are traveling now. I remember last year there was a member of provincial parliament who went away on a trip and was uh, shamed extensively, yes. for, extensively for that. Uh, people are planning trips this year. They're hoping to be able to go away somewhere. They're trying to get back to what's normal, but it has to be done in a safe way. Those rapid tests are going to be key, and I don't know that five is going to be enough, um, but, you know, it's a start. We, we'd love to be consulted more with the government as far as any of these decisions going forward. Uh, we have a long, long road ahead of us. We have learning gaps that need to be addressed. And our, our people working in education, from the teachers to the secretaries to the custodians, they're all just exhausted by this and trying to say to themselves, how much longer can I put up with this? We've, we've had a lot of retirements this year. We've had people leaving the profession altogether saying, I think I need a different job. This is really just not for me. And not knowing what's going to happen day to day is really challenging. So we're going to have to make sure we have the right number of adults in the system to educate the, the students of Ontario. As my first principal said to me in 1991, these students are going to be paying taxes and they're going to be paying our pension one day. And I agree with that. We need to make sure that they're getting what they need from the education system. Well, and, and that's the ultimate goal here. And I'd like to think that we're all on the same page, although mm-hmm. sometimes things can get a little uh, uh, hectic and, and you have to wonder about somebody's political goals as opposed to the, the overall good in situations right. like this. But it is a positive move, and I, I think we're glad about this. The concern we've got, of course, is that uh, is people have to remain diligent. And, and you're right. I mean, yeah. as, as bad as it got last year, 
uh, we weren't supposed to be traveling. I, I know you're right. Minister Phillips uh, kind of got caught in, in, with his hand in the cookie jar there and mm -hmm. ended up losing his position on, in the in the cabinet for a period of time as a result of that. Uh, but because people are going to be out and about and they're going to be traveling to different parts right now over the holidays, it, it does raise some concerns. And I guess we have to wonder, and I guess we're going to have to wait until the dust settles in, in the first week of January to see just how it's going to roll out in the, in the school system itself. That's right. That's right. You know, it's the same things that we've been looking for all along. Vaccination. We're doing pretty well with vaccination rates. Today is a very happy day in Ontario and in Canada yep. that the, the 5 to 11-year-olds can now have their vaccine. So that's exciting. Ventilation is really important. Like I said, we have concerns going into the winter season, what that's going to look like. Masking is still going to be crucial. And the countries in the world where they have dropped the mask mandates have seen the highest increases. And we can't let that go. We have to continue with the masking we have to look at the distancing while we are inside these, these are all things that we have to be considering and not be letting our guard down we're tired we're exhausted but we need to be vigilant about this and especially over the holidays where we're going to be mixing with people from other areas you know people might be traveling and coming back we need to make sure and trust that our, our colleagues friends and neighbors are doing what they can to keep themselves safe Karen, good luck with this, and uh, good luck going forward with this with you and your members. And uh, hopefully this is, as you say, a first step on uh, yeah. that way back to, quote-unquote, the normalcy of this. Uh, we'll talk again soon, but thanks for the time today. Yeah, thanks so much, Bill. We'll talk to you later. Karen Littlewood, the president of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation, uh, embracing the the move by the the province to move back to uh, some sense of normalcy when it comes to the, how uh, we're going to be teaching our kids, in, especially in secondary school. This is the Bill Kelly Show, CFPL London, CHML in Hamilton. First day back to work for members of Parliament today, too. Parliament resumes uh, today. Speech from the throne around noonish, we're told. And, uh, well, Canadians have some expectations of this Parliament. Sean Simpson is the Vice President of Ipsos Public Affairs, and uh, our friends at Ipsos have been polling Canadians to find out just what are those expectations. And Sean joins us uh, with the results on this. Sean, great uh, that you could be with us on this very important day. Hope you're doing well these days. I am, thank you. Uh, I, I guess first and foremost, we shouldn't be surprised by the results of, of what you guys found out at Ipsos. Uh, certainly, the, the, the pandemic and COVID is, is still very much on the minds of Canadians, but it seems to have been superseded right now by our, our quality of life, the quality of living, yeah. all these things we've been talking about, the pressures on individuals and on households, uh, is, is really, I think, the, the thing that we're looking for some help from here, aren't we? Yeah, that's right. Uh, when we ask Canadians what the uh, what our politicians should be focused on, the upcoming session of Parliament, first and foremost was affordability and the cost of living, with 33% of Canadians saying that was one of their top two priorities. It actually bests COVID-19 uh, and healthcare in the second and third spot, respectively. Uh, and rounding out the top five is housing and the economy. Now, housing is interesting because, uh, you know, decades ago, when that would spike as an issue, what we meant was housing for you know, people who need subsidized housing for the less fortunate. Mm -hmm. Now when we say housing, we mean housing for everybody because it's just becoming so expensive to to, to, to buy a home and to keep up with uh, with mortgage payments. The other thing about affordability that's, that's really interesting is, you know, on election day, we ran for Global News, a big election day poll of over 10,000 voters. Uh, and we asked them, what issues were driving your vote? And affordability was the number five issue on election day. That was only two months ago. And so it's gone from number five to number one in the span of 60 days. 
which is not surprising, I guess. Uh, you know, we we were concerned about our health, but I, I guess we're all getting to the point right now. We're saying, okay, we're glad, okay, that we seem to be getting this pandemic under control, at least more than it was a year ago. But I guess there was a mindset at one point, Sean, to say, okay, we'll do whatever it takes, and if we have to, yeah. you know, have a little pain, we'll do that. But now we're saying, you know what? Enough of the pain. You know, I, you know, I want my kids to be able to afford a house. I want to be able to, you know. Yeah to pay the bills. And and I, I don't know that any of us saw this happening. And certainly the experts didn't. I mean, you know, who, who was six months ago talking about inflation going up to the extent that it has yeah. and the cost of living going up? The, this I, I think it caught a lot of people by surprise. Well, we seem to be dealing with the, the problem that's in front of us, right? And so, mm-hmm. uh, you know, six months ago, we were still concerned, uh, you know, about pandemic and the, and the vaccine rollout, rightly so. Uh, the the countermeasure to the economic woes, of course, was continuing to have low interest rates and uh, lots of government spending. Well, the byproduct of those two things is inflation, and that's now being compounded, of course, by supply chain issues. So the government is saying this is temporary, uh, but Canadians maybe aren't so sure because they were already having a hard time, you know, paying their bills, and now with inflation close to five percent, they're getting they're getting they're getting quite worried. The antidote now is that either government well, it'd be the Bank of Canada, of course, raises interest rates. And of course, that's not going to make people happy. And the other alternative is to cut back in government spending. So either you see public sector job losses or, uh, for example, rolling back some COVID benefits. And that's not going to be a popular decision either. So you know, the prime minister is already not uh, starting on, on, a, on a solid footing. He's only got 48% approval rating. So there's zero honeymoon whatsoever uh, for this, uh, this, this re-elected, newly re-elected prime minister. And and he's faced with with some difficult decisions, and of course, Canadians are skeptical that the government is actually going to be able to help at all when it comes to affordability and cost of living. By the way, because I know you did uh, talk about some of those things about the political future of, of, of uh, the Prime Minister and others, forty uh, percent of Canadians think that uh, Justin Trudeau should step aside as Liberal leader before the next election. Uh, he says he doesn't want to do that. I guess if he if he wants to improve that number, uh, they better show some results about some of these other things with the, the quality of life and the cost of living. Uh, that's the, yeah. usually for any politicians the best way to try to get back in the good books of people right now. And and as as you and I have talked about in the past, Sean, when people are getting ticked off about the way things are going, they like to blame somebody, and invariably it's going to be the government. Yeah, and uh, governments wear pocketbook issues, and that's what we're seeing now here at the at the height of the uh, of the priority list. Uh, so forty percent say Trudeau should take a hike already, like and not and not fight the next campaign. Thirty percent say he should stay. The other thirty percent are undecided. They're saying, well, I'm going to wait and see what happens in this next session of Parliament. And if if uh, the Prime Minister can't deliver some relief to Canadians in their pocketbooks, where, where, where it counts the most, he may in fact need to take his own long walk in the snow to, to think through his future. Well, yeah, we're tired of platitudes, I think, as a country right now, and we're looking for some action. And these guys, uh, as you say, are going to have to hit the ground running starting today and come up with some ideas. It's going to be fascinating uh, to see just how they do respond. And (laughs) more importantly, I suppose, as far as the government's concerned, uh, who's going to be there to to get their backs and support some of these things. Interesting times in Ottawa, certainly, and the impact it's having on all of us. And it's always great to to get Ipsos uh, giving us the pulse of this country and exactly where we are on this, Sean. Thanks so much for the uh, the great work that you guys are doing. And uh, thanks for spending some time with us today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Take care. Sean Simpson, who's the VP of Ipsos Public Affairs. And, uh, well, the message is loud and clear to MPs of all political stripes. Get back to work and get this done. And let's let's get out of this hole that we find ourselves in these days. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Courtroom dramas and, and well, some shock and, and 
concern about what's going on. We all know, of course, about the verdict uh, that came down in Kenosha on uh, Friday. 18-year-old who shot and killed two men and wounded a third has been acquitted of all charges of homicide, attempted homicide, and reckless endangerment. Uh, Kyle Rittenhouse learned his fate in Kenosha over the uh, Friday afternoon session. It was four days, I guess, that the jury had been deliberating. Now, as you know, he claimed self-defense in the, the shootings, which occurred in August of 2020, and it became a flashpoint uh, about America's debate about guns, about vigilantism, and, of course, about racial injustice. Goebbels' Reggie Cicchini files this report. At points during this trial, drama clashed with fireworks. Rittenhouse broke down as he took the stand, testifying about the fear he felt that night. Well, at times, prosecutors struggled with momentum. Don't get brazen with me. Sparring with the judge repeatedly over evidence and lines of questioning. He knows he can't go into this. The defense even going so far as to call for a mistrial twice. Outside the courts... No justice! Protesters on both sides have led to nervous tension, putting Wisconsin's National Guard on standby. He wishes none of this would have ever happened, but as he said when he testified, he did not start this. Now, after 22 witnesses, a 12-member jury sided with a teen in a case that divided America along political and racial lines. Reggie Chikini, Global News, Washington. So much to unpack about this and, and to get the proper perspective on this, and, and I'm still not sure that's going to increase anybody's comfort level. Uh, joining us to talk about this, though, so pleased to welcome back to the program Andrew Fugirli, who is the uh, lecturer at the Faculty of Law at the University of Toronto and always a welcome guest uh, when it comes to things legal, of course, in the program. Andrew, a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks for the time today. Happy to be on, Bill. Good to talk to you. We're, we're, we're looking at this from afar, of course. This is in Wisconsin. That's uh, that's uh, Wisconsin law as opposed to Ontario law. And I know that, as you've told us, uh, ju- different jurisdictions, it can be an apples to oranges comparison. Uh, but as you watch the proceedings, uh, Andrew, over the last couple of weeks as the trial proceeded, were you surprised at the verdict? Uh, not really. Uh, taking into account the cultural differences uh, between here and south of the border, uh, which is something that I wouldn't have necessarily said 20 years ago, uh, but I say it now. I wasn't surprised. Um, I think that for us looking at this case, one of the biggest shock factors is that the accused was somebody who went to a protest carrying a, a very dangerous gun. And that's very foreign here. And it's not foreign down south of the border. And so in the context of the United States, culturally uh, and legally, um, I I wasn't surprised by this verdict at all. And and that's one of the key points of this whole thing. I think many of us have seen the video. There have been two or three videos that surfaced right right around the time of the incident and subsequently, of course, during the trial. And and you see him in his, well, his fatigues, I guess, and his olive drab green, uh, walking down the street uh, with this AK-15 assault rifle and apparently in Wisconsin, that's no big deal. You're allowed to open carry there. So that's why everybody's shocked and, and, and saying, well, what the hell's going on with this? But he, the, the, other people were doing this. And I guess if he or anybody else wanted to walk down the streets of Kenosha tonight with one of those, that would be that's legal, apparently. And that, that's kind of hard for us to get our heads around, isn't it? Well, legal and uh, and encouraged by some by a large segment of their society. And I mean, look, Bill, you've covered protests in in your journalism career i've i've defended people involved with protests i've been to protests i've seen them i've seen counter protests and here the the idea of protesters or counter protesters carrying fully automatic assault rifles out in the open is very foreign and thankfully so that's not the case down there 
Um, and so that becomes a legal factor, too. If it's legal to do that, um, then uh, on the, in the sort of the self-defense framework, that's something that the jury has to be taken into account, that what Rittenhouse was doing was not necessarily illegal. It's shocking to us, but it's not illegal down there. And, and, and it's encouraged, as I said, by a large number of people down there. What are the other elements? I want to talk about that aspect of it because, it, like I say, it's so foreign to it to what we see here in Ontario, uh, and I, I embrace that too. I, I share your your sentiments about that. He was underage when he when he got this weapon. Uh, apparently, we found out through the trial he didn't buy it; somebody bought it for him. So that was quote unquote legal, but he was still underage carrying it, and and the, nobody seemed to th- think that was a big deal either. Well, the age cuts both ways because. Um, and even in Canada, one of the factors that juries or, or trial judges are um, instructed to take into account by our criminal code uh, is the age of the uh, uh, of the accused person or the person claiming self-defense. So on the one hand, uh, you have a very young person carrying a very, very dangerous thing around in a volatile situation. And you would say that that would cut against a self-defense argument. But on the flip side, part of the self-defense test is subjective and it asks the jury for at least part of the test uh, to put themselves uh, in the place of the accused including someone of that age and generally speaking the younger you are the more forgiving juries are going to be uh, uh, in terms of your decision making at that time I think that it would have been more difficult to run the self-defense argument not impossible but a bit more difficult if this was a 45 year old man who, frankly speaking, juries might look at and say, I expect you to know a little better or I expect you to have a bit more self-control. Um, I, I think his age in this case, and quite frankly, you saw it when he took the stand uh, and whacked. Um, I think that was something that for that jury helped the defense a fair bit. But the contention from, uh, from the prosecuting attorney, I was going to say the Crown, I, I get my jurisdictions mixed up here again, was that, look at, because he was claiming self-defense, and, you know, saying, well, look, you know, one of these guys, they, they, those conjecture was that one of them actually was armed when they shot him, but he felt he was being changed. But, the, but the, the prosecutor came back, though, Andrew, as you know, and said, wait a second, you can't put yourself in that position and then claim self-defense. In other words, he got in a car while his mother having drove him a couple of hours from, from Illinois to this place, and he started walking up and down the streets. In other words, they didn't come to him. He sought this out. And, and then is going to claim self-defense because he put them himself in that precarious position. Uh, and, and of course, what because this is a, a two-part question, I was interested in that line of questioning from the, from the district attorney, but more importantly, how the judge in this trial just slammed the, the, that argument and many other arguments from the, the, the DAs about this. Uh, I, I guess, judge, if we expect to be impartial, this guy looked like he was, he was taking sides on this one. Uh, so on this point... It's a, it's a good rhetorical point for the prosecution that you sought out this danger. Uh, legally, it's not prohibitive if you put yourself in a dangerous position. Self-defense is not barred to somebody who puts themselves into danger. It is a factor to consider. The conduct of the accused leading up to the incident is something that triers of fact have to consider. And in some cases, they will say that the behavior was so reckless and so inviting of danger um, that uh, it may be that in that case, self-defense doesn't prevail. Uh, but it is not a factor that 
um, uh, ends the case for the prosecution, that gives them the win, the fact that he drove to attend this as a counter-protester. That's part one of your question. Part two, uh, this is a very active judge. And we have those in Canada, too. And there were times where it was clear that he was displeased with the prosecution. What I can tell you, Bill, is that on a couple of occasions, the prosecution asked for that. They behaved entirely inappropriately. And the judge in those situations was right to call them out on it. Um, I think there were other comments the judge made that were inappropriate um, in other ways and ill-advised. And I think he made relatively clear, frankly, um, where his sympathies lay in the case, which you don't like to see, generally speaking, from a sitting judge. But there were times that the prosecution absolutely stepped over the line and deserved to be called out on it. No matter which way you look at this case and want it to go, um, there were times they deserved the criticism they got. Andrew, how difficult was it for the prosecutors to actually build a case here? I mean, we, we saw the video. Uh, you could actually you could see the gunshots in, in a couple of the videos that I've seen anyway. Uh, but you have to prove intent, not just you know that moment. As, as you've talked about in the past, uh, what you see is not necessarily uh, what the judge or the jury, for that matter, in this particular case, are going to have to make their judgment based on. You have, I guess to, to, to gain a conviction here, you pretty much have to get into this guy's head and say, well, what was he thinking? What was he intending to do? And that, that's got to be very difficult to prove sometimes. Yeah, and, you, and you've hit on an important point that, that I really want to bring home again for your listeners, which is it's not the job of Rittenhouse or any other accused to prove self-defense. They've raised it. It goes to the jury. The prosecution has to prove that self-defense was not applicable here. They have to prove murder in the face of self-defense uh, argument. And so um, it is difficult, generally speaking, for prosecutors in homicide cases when an accused raise self, raises self-defense. I, I would say, from my experience, those are the toughest cases, murder cases for prosecutors um, in many instances because it, it becomes easy for a jury member to put themselves in an accused position when a self-defense argument gets raised. Um, and conversely, it's hard for a prosecutor to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that self-defense wasn't what was happening here. Even all Rittenhouse had to do through his self-defense argument was raise a reasonable doubt. And for this jury, he did. And the other element, too, and I, I guess, as you mentioned, you have to consider the, the, the climate. And I mean, you know, the, the social climate that was going on. Uh, he was not the only vigilante that was on the streets that night. And, and we're told that, uh, that the police in Kenosha actually encouraged that. Uh, they wanted people to be out there. The one individual testified they were actually the police were actually passing water out and encouraging these people and telling them where to go uh, to try to patrol, use the term loosely, uh, the streets here. So it, it just seemed to me as if this was a, a terrible circumstance ready to explode, and it did. And, and there's some history there. You're right, and and there's history in the United States. I mean, I, I know we want to decry this as as a as a modern phenomenon, and I think things have gotten more radical uh, down there. I don't think there's any disputing that. But Bill, you'll remember in the, in the mid '80s there was the the case of the uh, of the subway shooter in New York, yep. um, uh, who brought a loaded gun onto the subway, um, and a number of of black youths came up to him, and there's dispute as to whether they asked him for change or told him to give their wallet, and he opened fire and killed a number of them. 
And uh, the prosecution there argued it was an unprovoked killing, that he came in armed onto the subway, hoping for a confrontation, got what he wanted, um, and shot a number of people who, um, uh, in their argument, did, did nothing to deserve it. And he was acquitted as well. And that used to be taught in law school. That case was taught to me in first year of law school as a relatively extreme example of self-defense um, in terms of, of um, how little, uh, um, how, how minimal the threat was in that case relative to other cases where the argument prevailed. Here, uh, you see it again. So not only do, do you have a, a culture where, you, as you've noted, the police are calling for counter-protesters to come where gun laws have become more lax, uh, where assault rifles have become more prevalent, even as open carry weapons. Uh, and, uh, and you also have this, this history uh, of cases where this is, has been successful for accused in the past. I got an email from one of our listeners here, from uh, Gary, who's listening to the conversation, said, are they going to appeal this? Uh, is there any sense in doing that? In this? Uh, we don't know exactly what, what avenues they have uh, available to them and which ones they're going to take. Uh, but but given what you've just described here, uh, do the prosecutors see any, any advantage at all in trying to appeal this? It's hard for prosecution for crowns here or prosecutors in the states to appeal anything. You need an error of law. Um, you, you can't get up and say that the jury came to the wrong result. They should have convicted. Uh, that's not an argument that's open to prosecutors to make on appeal. What they have to make, say is that the judge made a legal error um, in their charge to the jury or, or on an evidentiary ruling that was clear and could uh, could have affected the result. And here, um, I don't I haven't heard of any being mentioned as being available. That's number one. Number two, the prosecutors uh, in this case don't exactly have the cleanest hands. Um, they stepped all over an evidentiary ruling uh, that caused the judge to lose his temper with them and, and actually had a mistrial application that he didn't rule on in that case. Um, I, I don't think this is the sort of case where they'd appeal. I've heard of no legal error that would meet that test. And uh, frankly, I don't know that there's going to be much of an appetite politically for the DA's office uh, in that jurisdiction to keep this case open. I, I think they're going to do uh, the thing that you see down there a lot, where they're going to try to turn the page on this as quickly as they can. Uh, but I don't think uh, Mr. Rittenhouse is out of the the woods just yet, though, is he? I mean, there's still the possibility of civil action. Is that Well, I, the OJ trace comes to mind. He was found to be not guilty there, too, but there was a huge civil action that ensued uh, that did find him culpable. I'm not suggesting that's going to be the end result here, but that's an avenue that's open, uh, I guess, to the families of the victims here, isn't it? Yeah, that's in the civil uh, realm there. Uh, he can be held to account for damages, and, and the bar... Um, is lower in the civil bar in, in civil cases. They just have to prove uh, that he committed um, a, a civil action or a tort um, against these individuals on a balance of probabilities. Um, and those families could uh, be awarded a very large sum of money. Um, it does not mean though uh, uh, that his uh, liberty is in jeopardy at all. He will be free. And in the civil realm, uh, it's, it's financial as opposed to, uh, uh, penal in terms of consequences. Uh, speaking of consequences, uh, we're still waiting to see exactly what those are going to be, I guess, uh, if, from a societal standpoint as well. Uh, Andrew, always great to get your perspective. I know how busy you are today. Thanks for jumping in with us for a few minutes. Really appreciate the time. Anytime, Bill. My pleasure. The Bill K.
Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.